I'm not sure what it says about me, but when I was a kid in school, I kind of liked taking tests. Uh, I remember very distinctly often running in cross-country races, which I ran in high school, and thinking around the two-mile mark, really a lot better at taking tests. I wish I were taking a test somewhere. This is really hard. And uh, sympathize with those for whom test-taking is equally painful as running is for some of us, although I do more running now than test-taking. And I always like true or false tests. Generally, they were pretty simple, and as you know, if if you get to one and you're absolutely stumped, you do have a 50-50 chance. Better than those pesky multiple choice where you only have 25 or 20% chance in guessing. And so your true or false test might be something like true or false, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died on the same day 50 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed. True or false? True, yes. If you don't remember from school, there's a movie about it now. True or false, the settlers who landed on Plymouth Rock were looking for gold. Ah, very bright, yes, false. That's all I have, just two questions. So you aced it. Maybe you were guessing. That's the beauty of true or false. And as I've reflected more, besides the information that can be conveyed in a true or false test, it does something else important. It reinforces to a child, that some things are true and some things are not. There's actually a very powerful underlying message. One of the reasons you study math, okay? Any kids here? Math? Any parents who are going to send their kids to school or parents who are going to teach their kids and wonder, when am I going to learn this stuff? Why do I have to study math? I have a calculator now. I have a cell phone. I don't need to study math. Study math because, number one, in it you can see God's patterns. God's patterns and how he arranged the universe with order and design. And second, you learn math. If if you never even use all the complex equations... Part of the value in math is you learn not every answer in life is right. Not every answer is right. And math helps to reinforce that. Yes, no matter how much you feel that 2 times 2 is 5, it just doesn't work. You think it, you want it, you really believe it in your heart of hearts, but it's just not right. Some things are true, some things are not. So children, through these True and false, through math, through these, they learn not just facts, but equally as important, they learn there are facts. And true or false is not automatically assumed, the very existence of true or false. Now, sure, if you're talking in history, uh, certain facts, although many historians would debate, well, can you really know anything about history? Math, probably, you understand, there's some right and wrong answers. When it comes to religion, People have a whole different sort of category. No, no, we're no longer dealing with truth and falsehood. We're dealing with opinions, with interpretations. No longer the old word of virtue, but now values. No longer character, but a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's a style that you have. 
And if we have any sort of religious truth at all, then we are told that it's simply different aspects of the truth or shades of the truth or ways of seeing the truth. We have, as one denominational leader told me at one time, all we have are small T truths. We do not have capital T truth. Second Peter, on the other hand, deals very comfortably in the categories of truth and falsehood rights and wrongs. If you open your Bibles to Second Peter, this is page 1018 in the Blue Bibles. We'll be looking in just a moment at chapter 2. Now we've already seen in chapter 1 that there is a godly way to live and there is an ungodly way to live. The whole book is really Peter, before he dies, exhorting this congregation to pursue virtue, to live a life of holiness. We have seen that there is history and there is myth. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration. We were there. We saw it. This was history. Not like a myth, not a fable, not something that we just sort of felt authentic about. It actually happened. And even more sure, he says at the end of chapter 1, even more sure than eyewitness testimony is the prophetic Word, the Word of the Scriptures. And following this declaration about the trustworthiness of the prophetic Word, he now is going to speak of those who were false prophets, will be false teachers. This is the theme of the the rest of the book. And we'll say a lot more about who these people are and what they say and how they hurt people, how they will be judged. Our passage tonight, Peter simply introduces these false teachers to us. Be reading in chapter 2, the first three verses. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I want to look at seven characteristics of false teachers. Seven characteristics of false teachers. Before we do that, I want to offer two cautions. So here's the first caution. Do not put every misguided Christian in the category of a false teacher. Some people are strugglers. Some people are false teachers. James 3.1 says not many of you should be teachers because you will be judged more strictly. There are those advocating for something that is false. There are those, many of us, who struggle, who have doubts, who wrestle with things, who wonder what to make of the Bible at times. He's not talking about those people. The Bible recognizes even more. The Bible recognizes Christians will not always come to the same conclusion on every matter. We see this in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. We see it again in Romans 14 through 15. There the specific issue has to do with much of the the ceremonial law 
and whether or not they would keep the Sabbath days that they had kept them before and whether they would eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says very clearly, you need to be convinced in your own mind and you may not come to the same conclusion. So we, we need to have that category as Christians. Let each of you be convinced in your own mind that not everything is a heresy orthodoxy issue. Not every time you disagree with a Christian, must you say that's false teaching? Judgment upon them. They are false teachers. So uh, how do we know? How do we know which errors are less serious than others? Well, we can start. The church history helps us. We look at creeds and councils and what the church has always believed. Although the church history is not infallible, so ultimately we have to discern from the Bible what the essential non-negotiables are. Now, this could detain us for a long time to try to understand that. Uh, a while back, I was looking through the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus, because in there, Paul deals a lot with false teaching, guarding the church against error, giving pastors instructions for protecting the flock. And I tried to just piece together from the pastoral epistles what... This, this orthodox deposit look like? What constitutes false teaching and heresy and, and what is the orthodox gospel? And if you look at Paul's trustworthy sayings, if you look at the credo statements, if you look at the doctrines associated with the false teachings in those books, if you look at the truths associated with the gospel and sound doctrine, you get a, a, a fairly good picture of what this core doctrinal message was in the early church. The gospel message that Paul preached and he expected all Christians to adhere to looks something like this. I'm just skipping all of the, the supporting evidence. It's just going right to the conclusion here. God is glorious and we are sinners. Jesus Christ is our Savior and God. Jesus Christ is the Son of David and God in the flesh. He died and rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is coming back. Salvation is by sovereign grace, according to the converting power of the Holy Spirit, through faith, not according to works. Jesus Christ saves us from sin, saves us for eternal life, and saves us unto holiness. That's the summary of the apostolic deposit. Here is... In bare bones form, not saying that's the only thing that matters or that, we're, that we need to be doctrinal minimalists and who cares about all the rest, but this was the core of the apostolic message, the gospel of the early church. And Paul made clear it is rooted in Scripture. It has apostolic authority. It is not to be deviated from. If you move from that spot, those clusters of teachings, you have moved away from the safety of Theological orthodoxy. So the early church would learn to explore the implications of all those things. Well, what does it mean? Jesus is God. How can we explain that? And so they had these, adopted some of these categories of personhood and nature and essence and being, all trying to safeguard with non-biblical language these essential biblical truths. So surely this, this is the core that must be affirmed. And to the extent that you deviate from that core, you are moving away from the gospel and from Christianity itself. And you are striking at the very heart of the Christian gospel. And as we'll see, 
in just a moment, these false teachers were, were getting and removing central planks from that apostolic deposit, namely that we are saved unto holiness. Saved in order that we might be holy. So the first caution here, do not put every misguided Christian into the category of a false teacher. You must allow that uh, because of the effects of sin, we do not always see things clearly. You must allow that on some debatable matters, Christians will come to different conclusions. You must allow that even on important matters that we hold dear and I preach on, that yet they do not rise to the level of false teaching, the kind that Peter is addressing here. Second caution is the flip side. So the first is, don't put every misguided Christian in the category of a false teacher. The second caution, do not remove, do not remove this category of false teaching just because the person you know is very nice, very kind, sweet, and professes Christ. Those are always the, the rejoinders you get when you start wanting to say somebody or something is false teaching. People say, look, he loves Jesus. He says so. Look, he seems to be helping a lot of folks. Look, I've heard he's a really great guy. You get those three things. He loves Jesus. He seems to be helping people. I heard he's a really great guy. In other words, seems to be pretty nice. And so let's not deal with these hard-edged categories. But the New Testament is unequivocally clear, and we'll see it tonight and in the weeks ahead, that we must, if we are to be faithful, have this category of false teaching. So the two cautions are really this. Don't make the category of false teaching so broad that it includes everybody who's not here tonight, nor make it so narrow that nobody could possibly be in it. Having said that, let me give you seven common characteristics of false teachers as we see in these three verses. Now, it does not mean that you have to have all seven of these to be considered a false teacher. These are the, the specific teachers in Peter's midst, and these are common characteristics that we still find today. Number one, common characteristics of false teachers. Number one, they do not advertise as false teachers. It says they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Verse 1, they, they are secretly bringing them in. Now, the word heresies generally means in the New Testament a sect, S-E-C-T, or a faction. This is how it's used in 1 Corinthians. This is how the, the Greek word is used in the book of Acts. So the later technical term, heresy, as something that deviates from Catholic, small c, orthodoxy, it didn't yet have that technical term. It simply meant something different, a, a faction, a different thing. Here, Peter simply means these teachers have brought in something different than you received. I've said before that Christianity, by its nature, is conservative. Now, well, that's, well, what does that mean? And what's he saying? All I mean by that is at its nature, Christianity believes there is a truth to conserve. A truth that is the same, will be the same, 
and it must be guarded and preserved. Sometimes people misunderstand the nature of Christianity because they see in the New Testament, well, look, there was all these changes and people before they couldn't eat uh, certain meats. And then God says to Peter, it's, it's, it's all clean and you can eat it before the temple was central. Now they don't have a temple anymore. They even have new scriptures. So look, Christianity, it's just, it's just this evolving thing and we should keep on evolving with it. The argument, however, overlooks the utter uniqueness of the coming of Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom. So these cataclysmic changes we see from the Old Testament to the New Testament have to do with the coming of Christ and all that he inaugurated and and the changes that came with him. But Christianity, just like it inherited from Judaism, is at its nature bent toward preserving the truth that it receives. So do not think, because there are these changes uh, and points of discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament, that therefore Christianity is this this, this snowball that's constantly uh, meant to change its standards, its doctrines, its behavior. Now, Having said that, we must be careful that we do not misunderstand our particular cultural trappings as equivalent to the gospel, and we always have to be on the lookout for that. But the problem with these false teachers in Peter's midst is they were introducing a new way of living, something that went contrary to the inspired apostolic tradition. Paul and the rest of the apostles were always concerned that they adhere to the tradition As they received it, you you receive this word from us, it is not to be moved. And the false teachers were slipping in and it was as if they were inserting counterfeit bills into the currency. And they do this secretly. False teachers will not announce, all right, next Sunday, our sermon series, Christianity is stupid. Okay, they're not going to do that. Actually, people might, actually, (laughs) because they believe in Christ, not Christianity and all the rest. But they're not going to announce themselves. In fact, you can be sure that false teachers will always have an element of truth in their arguments. You can count on false teachers using Bible verses. The Arian controversy was, was Jesus fully God or just like God? Uh, uh, Athanasius and, and Arius were, were trading back and forth Bible verses. So don't think that you can just sort of throw up your hands. Well, look, at these people are smart and they're obviously they have some Bible verses and who am I to say and we just have different interpretation. On certain key essential issues The church must say that interpretation is not faithful to the Word of God. And it is false. And this is true. So false teachers will have fine-sounding arguments. They will use Bible verses. They will use much the same language. When we were in Colorado, uh, I was outside, I was walking with one of the babies. I don't even think it was my baby. It was somebody else who was in the house and trying to... There's just kids all over. And uh, two very nice young men with white shirts and backpacks came up. And they were Mormons and they were 
forget where they were from, somewhere else in the country, but they were there in Colorado for two years, and this was part of their mission. And we uh, can look and, uh, with some appreciation for the sacrifice and, for, uh, and even can share with, with Mormons a sense of morality on a number of issues. So we talked to, uh, talked to them at, at length. I don't. I looked back and I thought, I was I not nice? They, they left before I was done. <laughs> That's not supposed to happen. But they finally just said, uh, we have another appointment to go to. But they were talking and they, they began their... Uh, I said, well, you guys are, are Mormons, right? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian and we believe some things different. So why, why don't you tell me, what, why are you a Mormon? They said, well... I just sort of gave them the, just the carte blanche, just go, give me your talk. And they started by saying, well, the most important thing in the whole world is that we can be with our family. Thought right there. That ain't quite right, but I see where you're going with this because uh, Mormons want to emphasize we can be with your family and then you can be with your family in, in heaven and you can have these different levels of heaven. So I sort of let that pass and was debating, well, what what should I talk about? Should I talk about Joseph Smith or should I talk about the, the different Mormon scriptures? And so I, I decided I wanted to talk about how you know that you're saved. So I asked them. I just fell back on evangelism explosion. <laughs> said, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? He said, well, because I belong to Jesus and they went on. Talk about it. And then I've tried my best and I've done... As soon as you get the and... So, try to explain justification by faith alone. And and one of the 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 guys was sort of tracking with me. And uh, well, okay. And then, but another one wanted to keep inserting. Well, no, that's yes, we have faith, but but that's not enough. And we need to do this. And and he he said, doesn't it say in uh, in Galatians somewhere that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So well, that's a that's Philippians too. But let's go there and let's look at that. Long story short, you've had these conversations perhaps. All sorts of the same language going on, same stuff floating around the atmosphere. But you need to be precise and get down. What are you talking about? What are you trying to say? We are not saying the same things, though we are at times using similar words. Now, these teachers in Peter's midst were slipping in counterfeit bills. They did not advertise as false teachers, but they were bringing in destructive new teachings. That's the first characteristic. Second, they deny their master. They deny their master, says in verse 1. This is a serious charge, is it not? To deny your master. Now, there's a curious thing going on here. How can they deny the master who bought them? This is salvation language. Christ who bought them with his blood. So are they saved and they're getting unsaved? Have they been redeemed by the blood of Christ and now they are rejecting that Christ? How do we understand this language of apostasy, which is all over the New Testament? I think the best way is to understand that Peter is explaining things using the language of observation, how, how you would look at things. In, in other words, he's saying these people who have professed Christ, these people who have been a part of our fellowship, these people who would claim to have been bought by the blood of Christ, 
no longer walk with him. So he is speaking, as the apostles often do, with this phenomenological sort of language, explaining, using the, the terms to describe them as they describe themselves, as, as they would present themselves. So they deny their master, though they would claim that they have been bought by him. How do they deny him? Well, you can deny Christ with false doctrine. And here, perhaps, they are teaching, as we'll see later in chapter 3, that the Lord does not return. And that's part of their explanation for why they don't have to be holy. But more than that, they are denying Christ ethically. They deny him by their actions. And this is really profound. You can say all the right things, and yet you live in such a way that the church must conclude you do not belong to Christ. You had all these Russian spies in the U.S. They found in this spy ring, and they were trying to assimilate and be a part of middle America and say all the right things and have the right degrees and do the right things. But at the end of the day, they were spies. They were not friends of the United States. No matter what they had said, their actions betrayed who they really were. Now, the difference in the church is that very often the false teachers do not know that they are false teachers. This is where it it is what Peter's saying is so radical. The Russian spies knew they were spies. They didn't want other people to know it. They knew they were spies. Sometimes you have false teachers. They know they're charlatans. They're trying to make a buck. Often, they're completely sincere and sincerely mistaken. They profess Christ, but they live as if they have not been bought by Christ. And this is so radical, so controversial for our day. We tend to assume that sincerity is the measure of truth. How can we say someone is a false teacher? He's so nice. She means well. But there comes a point where you must say you have denied your master. And the person may say, I love Jesus. I've given my life for Jesus. I sing to Jesus. I confess Jesus. Listen to me. I believe in Jesus. And yet you have to say, the way in which you live is a rejection of your profession. These these brothers, sisters, probably brothers, were, were not denying with their mouth. But they were denying Jesus as Lord with their lives. Third, third characteristic. They lead many astray. False teachers lead many astray. Here they lead others astray, verse 2, with their sensuality. They advocate a licentious, shameful lifestyle. And many are all too eager to follow their example. Isn't it true today? People will always be interested in Jesus as Savior if they do not also have to accept Jesus as Lord. I'm convinced that the greatest barriers to the gospel are not usually intellectual. They're usually two seemingly insurmountable barriers. Number one, the relational and social cost of leaving one system for another. And that's what you find people that... Whether they're raised Mormon or Islam or Hindu, you're asking them to, to 
leave that and in ways forsake their families. That's a huge barrier. The other barrier are the simple moral demands of the Bible. People, C.S. Lewis said, they have not tried Christianity and, and found it hard, but they found it hard and so they decided not to try it. There are these ethical implications of the gospel. And so people, if they can find a Christianity that does not require them to accept strict moral categories, they will be all ears. Of course, we want a Jesus like that. I don't know how many of you saw a week or so ago the uh, Anne Rice on her Facebook, Anne Rice, who wrote an interview with a vampire and then a couple years ago, made the news that she had returned to her Catholic faith. And she announced a week or so ago on Facebook, which is sort of strange, that she was giving up Christianity. She was not, of course, giving up Christ. But she said she could no longer call herself Christian because she refused to be anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-science, and anti-birth control. She insisted, however, that she remains an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be. What do you make of something like that? Well, on one level, you don't know what what Anne Rice has been through. You don't know what she's seen. Certainly, if she came to you, you'd want to talk and tell me. Maybe you've seen uh, bad churches. You've been a part of the Catholic Church. That's a whole other set of issues there. And tell me what what your experience has been. And maybe you, you need a listening ear. You'd have to do all of that. But at the end of the day, you cannot have Christ without the moral demands of Christ's gospel. To make matters worse, leaders in the UCC, the United Church of Christ, started a campaign. You'd like it here, Anne. In response, the UCC launched this campaign. You'd like the UCC, Anne Rice, and they offered support for the author. One leader says, quote, many of us who are Christians share Anne Rice's values of inclusion and reason. It's important that she and others know that a church like the UCC exists. So there will always be those in the church who will gladly say, you don't like that? Come here. You don't like that? That's fine. You don't like that standard? Don't like that standard? That doesn't strike you right? That's fine. And it is not to be cruel, it is only to tell the truth to say that that is false teaching. We'll say more about this in the weeks ahead because this, is a, this sensuality is a major part of their sin and false teaching, but you don't have to try very hard to make contemporary applications with degrading standards of sex before marriage, homosexuality, adultery, all the rest. People are all too eager to say, here's a Christianity that will work for you. You can live this way. They were saying it 2,000 years ago. It is not new. Think about the errors in the early church. They really, there's a lot of different shades of it. There's Judaizers, and then sometimes they would have this over-realized eschatology where they would already think the resurrection happened or that Jesus wasn't coming back. But at its root, there's basically two 
main errors in the early church. Legalism and license. Legalism and license. Asceticism and antinomianism. Those are the two root errors that you find time and time again in all of these churches. You either have, on the one hand, false teachers saying, salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is something you must do or something God must do in you to somehow prove or somehow earn this status before God. Justification is not solely grounded in faith. On the other hand, there were false teachers who were saying, aha, then grace, yes, go live however you want. And these things are always in tension with each other. As Luther said, justification is by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is not alone. In other words, the only ground of our salvation is faith, but if we have true, regenerate faith, it will manifest itself in a different life. In Peter's congregation, the false teachers were antinomianism. Antinomians. They were saying peace, peace, where there was no peace. They were saying, look, you do not have to follow rules. One commentator looks at the false prophets in the Old Testament and he says they all have three characteristics. Number one, they lack divine authority. Number two, they promise peace when God threatens judgment. And number three, they will be judged by God. And think about the false prophets in Isaiah's day, in Jeremiah's day, in Micah, Ezekiel's day. The false prophets, they had one message. There's generally one thing they said. They said peace, peace, where there was no peace. You're not going to go to Babylon. No biggie. It won't be very long. God's not angry with you. That was the quintessential false prophet message. God could not possibly be angry with you. And these false teachers were like it. So it is no small thing, brothers and sisters, that we get this right. It is not an exaggeration to say other people's salvation and indeed our own salvation may be at stake. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, it is a dreadfully serious thing when a Christian calls evil good. And false teachers lead people astray by encouraging them to celebrate and enjoy the sorts of things that the Lord promises to judge. It is not an occasion for us to have gleeful hearts or finger-wagging. It is an occasion for brokenheartedness and for telling the truth in love. Fourth, and we'll move through the remaining characteristics quickly. Fourth, these false teachers are an embarrassment to Christianity. Now, this is tricky because 
What some people are embarrassed by is actually faithful Christianity. But Peter is talking about a Christian faith that gets a bad name because the followers of Jesus look no different from the world. It was a common accusation in the first century that Christians were amoral. They said the Christians were cannibals. Why cannibals? Because they had this weird ceremony where they said they ate a body and they drank blood. People were, people were confused. People thought that they were incestuous. Why? Because they, they called each other brothers and sisters. And they had these things called love feasts. Sure sounds kind of weird. They charged them with immoral behavior. And the concern was that the pagans would see their good deeds and glorify God. That they could look and say, well, you know what? Say what you want about the Christians. But those people take godliness seriously. Say what you want about what they believe, but the people who become Christians live a lot better after they've become Christians than they did before. That's the sort of thing that Peter is concerned about. And he sees in these false teachers just the opposite. Verse 2 Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. People say, look at your Christians following this Christ. They live the same kind of lives that the pagans do. Absolutely debauched. Absolutely licentious. They're just enjoying all of the revelry like everybody else. What's the big deal? This is a crock. And they blaspheme the gospel. Fourth, or that was fourth. Fifth common characteristic of false teachers. They are motivated with greed. With greed, verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Compare that with what we saw in chapter 1, that the apostles speak what is true, what they have seen with their eyes, what has been recorded in the prophetic word, truth. These teachers give you what is false, and their motivation is money. You can sadly think of televangelists, regular evangelists, pastors, Certain strands of prosperity, gospel, teaching. People will tell you what you want to hear so they can get your money. Seed money always, of course. Just seed money for our ministry. It will multiply. Just put your hands on the TV and we'll get your return. False teachers. Do you notice? (laughs) This is so contemporary, isn't it? The two things that, that this false teaching centers on, sex and money. It's human nature. Pretty relevant. Sex and money, those are the false teachers. And woe to me, or any of you, if we ever change a Christian doctrine or an ethical demand in order to get one penny from someone. Be it for a capital campaign, a political campaign, a ministry goal, to sell a book, or whatever. The truth is not for sale. And no matter what someone will pay to have us say what they want to hear, the price is always too high. Must absolutely be inflexibly, unbendably rigid on that rule, that the truth is never for sale. Sixth common characteristic of false teachers, their destructive teaching leads to their destruction. So they destroy others. We've seen that. Verse 1, they bring in destructive heresies. Many follow their sensuality. But, here's the irony, as they destroy others, they too will be destroyed. 
Verse 1, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Or here's a, a profound turn of the phrase at the end of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago. Long ago. So this, this is something that God has had foreordained for these false teachers. Which is another reason to think that it's not that, well, they became Christians and then they became unchristians. No, they profess something Christian. But from long ago, their condemnation, what does Peter say? Their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God has not forgotten. God is paying attention. God sees. God knows. And God will punish. So the false teachers don't advertise. They deny their master. They lead many astray. They embarrass the faith. They are motivated by greed and they will face judgment. And finally, false teachers arise from among us. Verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. I wonder how that struck the congregation. He uses this language, this future tense, will, because he's referring to different prophecies that had already been made about false prophets, namely that Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to astray, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus warned, Jesus said that there would arise false teachers and false prophets in their midst. And now Peter is saying, it has come to pass among you. We, we should not be surprised. There were so often false prophets in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, the test for a false prophet is if his word does not come true. And if it does not come true, he is to be killed. A lying spirit went into the prophets to deceive Ahab. We see false prophets in Jeremiah's day who said the exile would be short. In Ezekiel's day, false prophets who said peace where there was no peace. In Jude, which is very similar to 2 Peter, Jude says these false teachers have slipped in. But Peter says they will arise from among you. Think about that. This congregation, any congregation, perhaps a childhood friend, perhaps a relative, perhaps an elder, a pastor, a leader. Well, the goal is not to make you all suspicious of everyone. But to say that false teaching arises from within the covenant community, from within those who profess Christ from within the church. Peter is going to say a lot more about false teachers in the rest of the book, but the most important point for tonight is simply to acknowledge that you and I must have this category. False teachers exist, and they exist under the umbrella of Christianity. Acts 20 Remember Paul is giving his tearful goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He says in verse 25, 
Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Do not think that because a brother or sister speaks at a Christian conference, that they're necessarily on the home team. Or that because they publish a book with Zondervan or Baker or whoever, or because they have the imprint of some evangelical institution or group, that they are therefore working with God's purposes. False teachers arise from within If you read the New Testament epistles, you notice something very strange. There is actually very little explicit critique of the outside world. Now, there's implicitly, you know, that's worldly behavior. That's what the pagans do. But there's very little explicit, you know, assault on the outside world. Now, part of that is because the church was so small and persecuted, they weren't in a position to offer that sort of critique. But what you do find a lot of is a concern for the errors that are bubbling up from within the church. So so we cannot say, as people are sometimes quick to say, look, 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 we we have a world to win. There are so many problems out there. We can't waste all our time with all these, these intramural church disputes. Well, I grant you, some of them are a waste of time. Wars about words, that's what Paul tells Timothy. Some of them are a waste of time. But some of them are deadly. And we ignore them at our peril. When you see false teaching that touches at the gospel, when it strikes at the very heart of our faith, who is Jesus? What did He accomplish on the cross? When denies the realities of of heaven or hell or the uniqueness of Christ or encourages evil instead of good. We have serious issues. There are, of course, two mistakes you can make as a Christian if you think about sheep and wolves. One one mistake is to be completely paranoid and suspicious that every single sheep is secretly a wolf. You go around and you've met people like that and they're always... They come up to you and they're always pulling your scruff and they're, they're twisting you and I don't know, Fluffy... They always want to, let me see your teeth before I talk to you. You look dangerous, I don't know. You bleat like a sheep, but there's something about your waddle. Those those are those people. Always look, everybody, you're a wolf, you could be a wolf. Well, that's annoying. But just as dangerous is the shepherd who thinks there's no such thing as wolves. Oh my, Grandma, what big teeth you have. You do not want 
Little Red Riding Hood for your pastor or your elders or your example. There are wolves and they are dangerous. False teaching exists and it exists within the church. And over the weeks ahead, Peter is going to help us hopefully get eyes and ears to see, to detect, to guard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, make us discerning. We really do need discernment. There are many, there are many ways to err. It's possible for a message like this and the messages to follow could, can stir us up in ways that aren't helpful. But, oh Lord, we are not embarrassed by the full counsel of God. We're not embarrassed by these hard words. We need to hear them, especially in our day. We do not want to trifle at false teaching. We do not want to coddle it. We do not want to welcome wolves into our small groups, into our libraries, into our churches, into our homes, even because they seem nice and sincere. They always seem sincere. So Lord, help us to be vigilant. Help us to be not just haters of what is false, but lovers of what is true. Help us not just to know what we are against, but to know what we are for. And help us most of all in spotting what is false, that it would lead us to celebrate and rejoice all the more in the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. We pray we would not be moved from it. In Jesus' name, amen.